We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, I am your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are talking about the new Netflix miniseries, Unorthodox. Jesse, will you uh, share with us a little bit about what Unorthodox is about? Sure. Uh, Unorthodox is a four-part miniseries. It tells the story of a character, Esti Shapiro, uh, who is a part of the Satmar community in Williamsburg, fleeing that insular community, leaving that community. The first part talks about it and shows her as a young 19-year-old uh, on Shabbat afternoon, fleeing her home uh, and taking a plane to Berlin, where in the story, her estranged mother, who also left the Satmar community, lives uh, there and it begins to tell the story of her meeting friends from a local nearby music conservatory um, and has flashbacks to her meeting her uh, husband, Yankee, and uh, developing that relationship. Um, she ends up sleeping in the conservatory. She ends up making friends with some talented musicians there. Um, the rabbi of the Satmar community sends Yankee and his cousin Moshe to fly to Berlin to try to scare Esti into coming back. Um, meanwhile, she finally reconnects with her mother. Uh, and in the flashbacks, it tells the challenges that she's having in both with going through with this wedding, this arranged marriage, and with the forced nature of intimacy, of sex solely for the sake of procreation, uh, but without being uh, intimate or um, loving with her husband in any way. Um, when she goes to a club in Berlin, uh, she ends up encountering Yankee's, uh, Yankee's cousin Moshe, um, and that is going back and forth with uh, the flashbacks of her uh, marriage crumbling. Uh, and then finally, as she's threatened, um, she tells her mother that she's pregnant. Her mother promises to support her and her child uh, so that she doesn't have to leave her child in the Satmar community as she did to Esti. Uh, and as she encounters Yankee and in this very powerful scene, actually, he cuts off his payas, um, showing that he could change as well. Um, but she says it's over. It's not them. They're not in love. Turns out that he actually asked her for a divorce um, and that this isn't her future. This isn't the community that she wants to be a part of. And in some ways, she really um, shows this liberating experience um, along the way, struggling in many different areas, struggling with um, struggling with uh, what clothes she should wear, struggling with being physical with friends and with other men, struggling with what food to eat, 
And it really shows her struggle that all that she knew was the Satmar community. She calls her grandmother who raised her uh, and her grandmother hangs up on her. That's all that she knew. And she's struggling with the idea that she had to give it up entirely. So you read uh, the book uh, that this show was based on, correct? Uh, it was, it's uh, also similarly titled Unorthodox by Deborah Feldman, came out in uh, around two, 2012. Is that right? Correct. And, uh, and, and were there differences, uh, as you saw, between the source material and the adaptation? Uh, there are a lot of differences. Uh, my understanding is Deborah Feldman actually lives in Berlin now with her son. Um, I read an article that said that she actually moved to Berlin because uh, the transition was so easy because of the similarities between German and Yiddish. And since she was fluent in Yiddish, it made it much easier for her to um, really speak and write and converse in Berlin. Um, the story, uh, the, her, the true story, her story, um, begins with her and the Williamsburg Satmar community. Uh, again, the Satmar community is a community that was founded by survivors of the Shoah, survivors of the Holocaust. Um, and it, she's in a loveless relationship, an arranged marriage, and really struggling for her own independence, struggling um, to, to learn more, to know more. She's also raised by her grandmother, uh, but she actually shows uh, her, to her husband that she really wants to learn more um, and uh, wants to stay committed to Judaism, but not necessarily stay committed to this insular community. Uh, and to his credit, at the time at least, uh, they left the the Williamsburg community. And I believe if I remember correctly, they, they relocated to Muncie, uh, which like for those of us who know Muncie, which is a, an ultra Orthodox community, it's like pretty strict, but it's, it's seen as rebellious to those in the Satmar community of Williamsburg. Uh, and she enrolled in Sarah Lawrence, um, and taking classes there. There's a fascinating, uh, a number of stories where focuses on, um, her bringing a, VHS, a video home, and she and her husband were watching it in secret. It was like some stupid movie, but it was a movie. They weren't allowed to watch television or movies, and they would that was their scandalous activity that they would do. They would watch it uh, totally in secret. Um, and I remember it's amazing because because some stupid movie is basically your and my Daf Yomi. Uh, right, right. Yeah, that's that's right, pretty much yeah. what this podcast is all about. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, there, there's this fascinating scene, um, if I'm remembering it correctly, in the book where she sneaks to New York City on Shabbat afternoon. Um, she keeps her car in like the Walmart parking lot, and so she walks to the parking lot. So people, which is on the outskirts of the Orthodox community, so people even in Muncie won't see that she's driving on Shabbat and drives into the city to take her child to the to a museum, and she encounters an egalitarian minion, a conservative synagogue, and that was the first time she was exposed to the idea of counting in the minion, which was really powerful. Um, so definitely very different story than the book. Um, 
in uh, the book, in the miniseries, in the book, she really struggled with um, being exposed to secular life, to um, culture, to arts, to knowledge um, for a long time, rather than just abruptly picking up and leaving and going to Berlin. But she was very involved, my understanding, with the creators of the miniseries and making sure that um, she was okay with the direction they were taking the story. So a lot of uh, threads to untangle there um, and, uh, and a lot to dive into. So why don't, we, why don't we get into it? The first thing that really struck me about the show, I mean, in addition to uh, something that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, which is, you know, how different um, Judaism looks and Jewish life looks in a Sotmer community versus a conservative uh, uh, community or liberal Jewish community. Um, but what, what I was really taken with was how, how you know, present uh, the Holocaust was uh, for Esty and uh, her family and, and her community uh, in Williamsburg. Uh, and yet the, uh, the escape that she makes is to Germany. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not a an ancillary point in the, in the show, I think, you know, I think that it's actually, you know, a deliberate theme that they're trying to lift up so that, you know, when she uh, gets to Berlin and uh, meets this group of, uh, of, you know, uh, peers that uh, are also in the conservatory that she wants to, that she decides that she wants to get into, uh, they take her to Lake Wansi, uh, which is uh, on the same banks um, uh, as the chateau where the final solution was engineered uh, during the uh, d- during the Nazi regime, um, and this is the moment where she uh, takes off her wig and takes off her uh, long dress uh, and goes into the water. It's almost kind of like a, a, you know a, a different kind of mikvah ceremony, a, a rebirth right. ceremony for her um, into uh, into secular life, and and this is happening you know, at the very spot where her people's plot, uh, her people's annihilation uh, was, was plotted for. And, and, and what, that, what that all kind of underscores to me, and I'm, it's not lost to me, by the way, that we're having this conversation, uh, dear listeners, we are having this conversation um, uh, just at the conclusion of Yom HaShoah Vagvura, uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, but uh, but the, the role of uh, our past and the role of memory in Jewish life is is obviously you know very uh, significant and very important. Uh, but also you know you and I uh, are a part of a you know denomination that gave birth to uh, uh, an idea expressed by Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, which is that you know the, the past holds a vote but not a veto. Right, that uh, that we should be informed by our past, that we should uh, feel a sense of uh, allegiance to our past and a sense of inspiration from our past, but we shouldn't feel bound to our past. But nevertheless, the Sotmer community uh, feels very self-consciously bound to its past. Um, is that what Esty's running from here? Is it, what are we supposed to take from that? Well, you know, I think it's really interesting. In the show, right, her mother gives her this application to apply for German citizenship so she could have a passport. One, it's, acknowledge- it's acknowledging she can't leave the country because she likely does not have an American passport. Uh, that has to do with the Satmar community's separation from government and also the way that the men in the community made those decisions and didn't give any rights or control to the women in the Satmar community. Um, I-, I think it's 
an intentional and powerful statement. Um, this Satmar community founded by Holocaust survivors. So she's leaving her experience with Judaism, a Judaism that is solely surrounded by Holocaust survivors or descendants of Holocaust survivors. And in turn, finding herself in a place where so many of her ancestors were murdered, uh, where she can freely be Jewish, whatever that means to her, and freely embrace that her her Jewish identity, however she sees fit. You know, it's fascinating. I think very intentional in the sense that Deborah Feldman now lives there, lives a Jewish life there. Um, it's you know, how Jewish is it? It's, it's up to her. But but right. there is a Jewish Renaissance going on in Berlin <laughs> today, which is r- really powerful. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, in you know, I was I was just in Berlin a, a few years ago and and could see some of it for myself. It's it's really extraordinary. And you know, we were talking uh, in our last episode about the plot against America and, and talking about the overtones of, uh, of, of from that show about our, our current situation in the United States right now. And you know, uh, uh, with with the rise of. of you know, far right politics in, in Israel too, and the embrace of some of the leading politicians of, in Israel of, uh, of, of far right politicians and, and leaders and even outright anti-Semites in other uh, parts of the globe, the, the, the increase in power of the ultra-Orthodox community within Israel. Um, and of course the, the, the rise in, in uh, you know, proto-fascism here in America and in other places, part of it, it, there was this ironic feeling I had, you know, I've had at, at times over the past couple of years that perhaps the only safe place for a Jew to be right now is Germany. Um, interesting. Um, I beg to differ. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I think it's it's trying to speak to the idea that do we run from our fears? Um, can we ever return to where we left, right? Um, this right. community never made, the Satmar community never really made Williamsburg their home. Um, right. they, they, they always saw themselves as outsiders. Right, they're sojourning um, there. Right, and um, I think there is a statement about saying, you know, that they're finally returning home to Germany. Um, I found, to switch gears briefly, I found it really um, interesting that the way I watched the show, it was almost uh, voyeuristic for, for, for me, you know? Mm. Uh, similar to um, uh, when I saw Schissel, uh, who Shira Haas also is a character in that show. Um, I say this as a rabbi, this ultra-Orthodox community is so foreign and so different than my understanding and appreciation uh, of what Judaism is that it's not like I'm watching a Jewish community. You know, I'll critique. I'll, I'll watch shows where there are Jewish characters or rabbis or they're doing Jewish ritual, and I'll be like, oh, that's not authentic. Oh, they got that Hebrew wrong. Uh, and this, I was like, this seems pretty authentic, but it's not the Judaism I know. Right. Uh, it's so different than the Judaism I know. Well, it did, you know, it felt like the show really did authentically capture, uh, 
you know, religious Jewish life in a Satmar community. And there were elements of it that were totally recognizable to me, right? So, you know, like we have weddings with chuppahs too. And, you know, some of us sing Mi Bon Siach at, uh, at, 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 at weddings, which is the song she, uh, um, Esty sings uh, at her uh, final audition, audition at the conservatory. Uh, and uh, and, and this, this really powerful, evocative moment. Also, I think, uh, you know, in the same vein as, you know, escaping to Germany uh, to uh, to start this liberated life, uh, the, uh, the the song that she sings to enter into uh, this you know secular Western artistic world, Bohemian world, um, is this uh, traditional Jewish wedding song. So there were there were definitely recognizable elements to me, uh, but but you're right, it, it felt um, so alien in, in so many ways. It was it was like it was like proximate to recognizable, but not actually recognizable to me as as Judaism and yet I think that you know what's what you know one of the things that I find challenging is that you know when when the the average person and I think even sometimes the average Jew when they think about when they picture you know what religious Jew looks like in their head they picture a Satmar Hasid or someone that you know looks like that right they you know the the kind of Judaism it's like they say in Israel right that the the shul I don't go to or the Beit Knesset I don't go to is is orthodox because yeah. there's a there's I think a, a a sense out there that authentic Judaism tra- is traditional Judaism quote-unquote is um is is synonymous with orthodoxy and really ultra-orthodoxy um but I think that you and I would see it differently, right? That uh, that that uh, that we believe that the Judaism we practice is fully traditional and fully authentic. You know, there um, there was a scene in one of the flashbacks where I think it was the rabbi, um, maybe it was um, Yanki's father, who was leading the Pesach seder. And it, first of all, it was the image of the kitchen that was covered, covered in, in, tin in tin foil, right, I floor to it, ceiling. Loved it, loved but, but he was talking about um, the exodus from Egypt and, and sort of sh- sharing that that story, um, right? And the words, right, Vahisha Amda. Uh, uh, this idea that sort of in every generation there are those who sh- who come to get us, but we survive. You know, again, I think this is very much the mantra of the Satmar community that was founded by survivors. But also, uh, we never settle. We can never make this place home, and that's why they're so separate from the rest of community. But that's also not what I believe Judaism to be at all. Right? I, I-, I think. As a conservative Jew, uh, one who, who believes in the ideology of conservative Judaism and the evolution of Jewish practice and halakha, Jewish law, but I believe that religion influences, influences society and society influences religion. So as a result, there's uh, the, the Judaism that I experience can't be insular um, because it's shaped by what's going on in this world. If religion isn't shaped by what's going on in this world, then religion is almost meaningless. I mean, I think about that a lot to switch gears a little bit as we're in quarantine and isolation right now, right? To me, uh, religion has to shape how we live in this world right now. We need faith. We need prayer. uh, We need God now more than than ever uh, as we struggle with our, our grief and our anxiety and our fears if religion isn't shaping how we view the world or if what's going on in the world isn't shaping how 
we experience religion, then right. we're doing it wrong. And I worry that by separating out religion, separating out community from what's going on in the outside world entirely, uh, they're actually not practicing an authentic form of Judaism at all. Well, that's right. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to yuck another person's yum. And there are people who, you know, are part of uh, communities like that and who practice religion like uh, Judaism like that, uh, that, that find it, you know, uh, uh, powerful and, and meaningful. And I, and I can certainly see, you know, why that would be on, on some level, but, it, but, it, but for my sensibility, I, I, I agree with you 100%, you know, that, um, you know, it's, it's impossible to encounter the world that we live in um, without, uh, without, for me, without seeing how, you know, Judaism, my Judaism um, informs how, how I view that, right? You, you mentioned a, a few issues and, I'll, you know, I'd add to that um, uh, ethics uh, and uh, a, a passion for justice too, right? We're living in a, a, right. a moment where the injustices that are present within our society, you know, are revealed in, in full focus. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that Jewish Judaism has, a lot to say about that. So, um, so this is a moment in which you know my Torah lens is, is very sharp, but also that I know that my my community uh, would, I think, you know, uh, not endure this moment if we couldn't adapt to the times. You know, so we're moving uh, services on Zoom and you know engaging with each other that way, um, not because I particularly like those ways of convening or 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 expressing. Uh, uh, faith, um, but because um, that's the need of the hour, and um, and that's how I can muster Judaism to meet the need of the hour. Um, so, uh, and I think that if you know communities uh, like the Satmar community were honest about it, they would acknowledge that they actually you know have Do the done same the thing. same thing. You know, it's not like it's not like uh, Moses was speaking Yiddish. Um, and dressing like a, uh, a, a 18th century Polish aristocrat, right? You know, so, um, what, you know, we, uh, uh, Judaism is always, like you said, informed by the, the society, uh, you know, in which it finds itself. And, and there's a dialectic, there's a give and take between um, what Judaism, what Jewish communities absorb from the outside culture and what we put back into the outside culture, what we, how we respond to it. Um, uh, you know, and I, and, uh, what, what's ironic to me about it is that Hasidut, Hasidism, uh, began as a you know populist reform movement within Judaism, um, and it was radical, right? Radical, right? To elevate the the, the spirituality and the passion, uh, um, uh, the the faith of, uh, of of Jewish life, um, and and was you know was so countercultural that uh, that that many of the established rabbis uh, at the time. You know, excommunicated or declared to be unkosher, uh, uh, Hasidut and the rabbis who uh, espoused it, um, and uh, and nevertheless, you know, it, it just I think shows you that you know uh, one day's uh, radicalism can just so just as easily become the next day's uh, you know reaction uh, reactionary uh, uh, approach, right? To, uh, conservatism. Um, and so here you have a, a community that is rooted in radical Judaism, um, at, at the, at, at the, you know, edge of the most conservative and reclusive communities within Judaism. Sure. Um, what do we make of the teaching, Mike, uh, right? Hillel teaches, um, 
and Perkea votes, Altifros Minatsi bore that, that we shouldn't separate ourselves from community. Um, it says in Masechetanit that this means that we need to be with community to console each other in their time of need. Um, right? To me, it's, it's the whole idea that you actually can't be Jewish on a deserted island uh, because Judaism is not about faith. It's about community. It's about practicing ritual. This is something that, as you just mentioned, we struggle with at this time that we're in self-isolation. Uh, uh, we're, we're doing all these things, using all these technology platforms to try to find a way to still be connected with community. Um, right. although, although if we are Jewish on a desert island, how many synagogues will there be? Yeah, that's, that's a lame joke. I thought you were going to make a loss <laughs> reference or, or, or something. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, right. Well, okay. Uh, if we are stranded on a desert island, will the island be in one place in time? Or, will, or will there be a smoke monster? Um, um, but but my, my point is, in a situation like this, where what Esti is doing is very much um, separating herself from community because the community is isolating, because the community is dangerous, because the community is oppressive. Um, when do we turn that teaching on its head? Yeah. And when do we say, yes, it's actually, you, you should separate yourself from community. Right. It's a, it's a really interesting question. I think that first of all, you know, um, one of the beauty, one of the beautiful things about Pirkei Avot, uh, which is where that teaching originally comes from. It's, it's uh, the, the Sage Hillel and Pirkei Avot. Um, one of the beautiful things about it is that uh, one doesn't necessarily have to agree with every teaching in Pirkei Avot. You know, uh, not every teaching there carries the force of law um, or normativity. Uh, and there are times in which I find uh, Hillel's maxim there uh, to be um, extremely powerful and compelling uh, and, and times in which it, it's not. And I think one of the... Um, one of the mistakes that Hillel makes in that maxim, if I can be so bold as to say that, is he says Hatzibor, right? The community, as if there were only one. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I think one of the themes of the show is that Esti finds a new community for herself that enables her to give fullest expression to who she actually is, or at least discover who she actually is, whereas the community that she came from uh, you know, tried to put her in a very particular box that happened to be, uh, for her at least, a very oppressive box uh, and one that that didn't uh, acknowledge uh, really any dimension of her humanity other than her capacity uh, or not to, to bear and raise children. So, um, so I think that, you know, I think that Jewish tradition uh, has a lot to say about, you know, being in circumstances uh, where our, you know, our, our lives or our dignity are in, in, in danger and, and what we should do in circumstances like that when, when, uh, when members of our community um, are engaged in behavior that, uh, that, that, that we find objectionable, what we should do about that. Um, so while Hill says don't separate yourself from the community, um, Torah uh, itself and plenty of places in rabbinic literature uh, say that, that we do have uh, an obligation to protest our community's uh, actions and, and its behavior. And we uh, do have a, a right to live in freedom and dignity at the core of uh, our, our, our story, um, the, the, the most foundational Jewish story, the one we just 
spent a whole holiday celebrating only a, a week or so ago, um, is an Exodus story, right? It is a, is a freedom story. So uh, I think that that uh, that is very present in in the Jewish spirit. But the other thing that I was that I've been thinking about a lot with this show, and I think it's related to the the teaching that you alluded to, is, um, you know. Uh, Whose obligation is it to ensure that one has a place within community? And I would say that it is both the individual who is within the community and the community itself to say, like, are, are we a tent that is big enough for all the people who might want to see themselves as part of this community, right, that, that have the impulse to not separate from the community, but it may be that the way the community is structured um, pushes them out and pushes them away. And so the story I was thinking of comes from uh, the Talmud tractate Chagiga, um, uh, and it's a story of uh, maybe Judaism's most famous apostate uh, named Elisha Venavuya, uh, otherwise known as Acher, the other or the outsider. Um, Milton Steinberg uh, in the 1950s, Rabbi Milton Steinberg wrote a, a beautiful book dramatizing this story called As a Driven Leaf. Um, but the, the story of Chagiga is that there are four rabbis that um, ascend into paradise. Uh, one goes crazy, one dies, uh, one comes out unscathed, and one, Acher, uh, or Elisha Venavuya, uh, uh, becomes an apostate. Um, and so uh, um, he becomes an apostate, according to that legend, because he uh, uh, sees an angel uh, engaging in behavior that he had been told angels don't do. Uh, and so something that he had been taught turned out to be uh, out of sync with what he was experiencing in, in the world. Uh, and he um, raised an objection to it. He said, maybe there are two divinities, right? Because this angel is doing something that's godlike. And I've been told all along that uh, only God did this thing. So he becomes an apostate and, and a decree goes out saying um, that, uh, that, that, uh, uh, Alicia Benavuya was uh, um, uh, forbidden from entering heaven uh, ever again. And so he leaves that experience. He goes back into the world. And he says, well, since I've been kicked out of that world, I might as well go and enjoy this world. And so he right. goes to Rome. He hires a prostitute. That's actually not the thing that he does that uh, earns him his true apostate status, but rather he pulls a radish out of the ground on Shabbat. Uh, and the, uh, and the Priorities, right? Right. right the, the, uh, the, the prostitute says, wait, I thought you were Alicia Benavuya, but now that you pull the radish out of the ground, I realize that you must be a hair. You must be an other. So what's, what, what I think is the, the story continues because it turns out that Alicia Benavuya had a student named Rabbi Mayer. And Rabbi Mayer continued to learn from his teacher, Alicia, even after Alicia became an apostate. So you see the scene where Rabbi Mayer is spending time following after Alicia, trying to learn Torah from him. Alicia is engaging him in this beautiful interaction of Torah that culminates in Alicia reiterating that he uh, is no longer uh, part of the community, that he's been essentially kicked out or that he sees himself as kicked out. And, and what I think the story raises to the forefront is, um, you know, maybe the problem is that the community wasn't expansive enough to hold someone like Alicia Benavuya in it because he is still in it. He's still engaged in, in the dialectic. He's still teaching Torah. He's still learning Torah. He still has a student. And yet his self-perception is that because of, you know, his ideas, his way of life, that he no longer has a place. So 
my, my point about Hillel's teaching is, you know, don't separate yourself from the community. That's part on the individual who's doing the separating and part on the community for how narrow or expansive they make the boundaries of community. And as a result, you know, I, I just have to give a plug and a shout out um, because this story about those who see their place in the community as so narrow um, and oppressive. Um, this story of unorthodox is not unique. Um, while I highly recommend you read um, Deborah Feldman's story with the same title, Unorthodox, about her story, Shulam Dean uh, wrote, uh, I think it came out in, in 2015, All Who Go Do Not Return. It's his story of transitioning um, as a Hasidic Jew into a secular Jew. Abby Stein, uh, who's a dear friend who actually... Um, has spoken here at Beth Ellen South Orange uh, as part of our celebration of National Coming Out Day. Um, she uh, is an American transgender author and activist and, and blogger uh, and writes about um, uh, her experience uh, as a ultra-Orthodox rabbi uh, leaving the community. Uh, and once she left the Hasidic community, she was able to transition um, and, and come out as an openly transgender woman um, because there was no place for her in that community. Really fascinating uh, stories uh, to add and shed more light, authentic light. Um, and just a, a shout out to the nonprofit organization Footsteps, which is based in New York City, um, which uh, provides one of the reasons why it's so hard to leave this community, right, because it's so insular, that um, this provides educational, vocational, and social support to those who are leaving the Haredi or Hasidic communities in the United States. Uh, it is not demonizing them, but I realize that so many um, have left without any skills, um, without uh, any knowledge, um, without any information, um, about that outside world and footsteps helps them navigate in the larger worlds. Right. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, not uh, living by the maxims of Pirkei Avot, right? Pirkei Avot famously says, in Kemach, in Torah, right? If you don't have uh, any sort of engagement with, with worldly occupation, uh, then it's impossible to fully live a life of Torah, right? It says, Yefet Torah im derech Eretz. Um, you know, great is, is Torah if it's paired with uh, knowledge uh, of uh, ways of being in the world, right? And so, um, you know, that, that I think is, a, is, is an important critique of, uh, the, you know, the, these sort of insular Hasidic communities um, that, that deliberately reject uh, the world. I mean, uh, you know, I, I hate to, you know, it's like one of those things where you, you see the news and you're like, is this good for the Jews or it's bad for the Jews? Um, but we see that now with, with Hasidic communities and, and ultra-Orthodox communities uh, in, in the U.S. And, and in Israel um, that are hotspots of the coronavirus pandemic because right. um, they refuse to believe the science and, and uh, to listen to the guidance of experts. And, um, and, uh, and so therefore, you know, put e each other and, and themselves in the wider community at risk. And, you know, I mean, I see that here. What it also does is it leads to an uptick in anti-Semitism. Um, not that that is fair or right, um, but when you have this large insular Jewish community being the ones who are 
um, having to have their weddings and b'nai mitzvah and parties broken up by police because they're not following social distancing guidelines and makes those who are outsiders or those who are looking for a reason to justify their hate saying, look, they're the cause, they're the problem. So there's, there's one other dimension of the story that we've, we've touched on, uh, but, but haven't addressed head on, which is the, um, the, the, the role of women, the place of women within ultra-Orthodox and, and Hasidic communities, which, which essentially is, you know, as um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the apparatus through which the mitzvah of procreation can, can occur. Uh, and that's part of Esti's journey in, in the story is, you know, she is, um, uh, she has difficulty uh, with uh, intimacy um, because uh, she's been diagnosed with having um, a, 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 a genital disorder. Um, and uh, it, it turns out that that may not be what was going on with her. Uh, but, uh, uh, but nevertheless, you know, uh, intercourse is, is extremely painful for her. So she's, uh, really unable to consummate the marriage with, with her husband and thereby, uh, wasn't getting pregnant in there. And, and, and as a consequence was, um, seen as devalued, uh, in, in the eyes of her husband her husband was going to divorce her because she wasn't able to provide him with a, with a family. And, um, you know, I recognize that, that we are, we are, you know, two, you know, cisgender white guys um, sitting here talking about this. But I wonder if, if um, you have any thoughts uh, about that, Jesse, about um, whether, um, you know, whether we in the liberal Jewish community um, are, um, are doing a good enough job uh, in, in, in ensuring, you know, the, the full and total equality of, of women. Uh, you know, certainly that, that, uh, that there's a, a long way to go for our um, more conservative brothers and sisters. Um, right. I, I think it's hard. I, I'm conscious, as you said, of the fact that we are two men having this conversation about egalitarianism and full equality of women in the Jewish community. Um, I think um, that there is equality uh, on the um, um, level of standards and practice, um, but when you talk about societal equality and societal norms, um, you only have to look at what's going on in the world. You only have to look at the way um, the President of the United States demonizes women. You only have to look at the way um, we, too many of our communities, see egalitarianism as not truly equal, but men are required to do this, and women can do this as you want. Then are we really teaching authentic equality? Is egalitarianism meaning that men and women are the same, or is it teaching that they should both be celebrated for their differences? Um, are we, uh, is it problematic that we're still reinforcing a gender binary system, that so much about Judaism is men or woman, and it right. doesn't leave space for the wide diversity of the gender spectrum that uh, the Talmud even talks about, the Mishnah talks about six different types of genders. Uh, and so I, I think uh, we have a long way to go. I think um, we've done many al for what's uh, both the conservative movement um, has done, sort of lagging behind, and American Jewish community uh, in general. Um, we've 
we've come a long way, but still have a long way to go. And I acknowledge that I am at times without any intention um, guilty of not doing my best um, to really walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Um, I think we all can be better. Well, Unorthodox was one season long, four episodes, but the show itself leaves a little window open for a, a possible season two. Uh, Jesse, would you like to see a season two of Unorthodox? And if so, what would you hope to see in season two of Unorthodox? Uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a season two. I don't think it was meant to be a television show. It's intentionally a mini series. Um, I think the story of not knowing what Esty's life will be and leaving it open-ended is very intentional. Um, I do find it fascinating, not just that she goes to Berlin, but the entire show was actually filmed in Berlin. Most of the uh, Satmar scenes, the wedding between Yankee and Esty, that was filmed in, in Berlin. Most of the Satmar Hasidic extras were Germans, uh, German non-Jews, um, which is actually very powerful to see them dressing up as Orthodox Jews, not in an anti-Semitic manner, but in a way that tells a Jewish story, the place where Judaism was almost uh, uh, wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, I think it ends the way it should end, like Sopranos, right? When, when the screen goes fades off- Fades to black. Fades to black. Uh, Esty's story is to be written. Um, this is a story not of who she'll become, but about who she is leaving. And that's really what about the footsteps this organization is and all of these stories. It's about leaving a community so that you can figure out who you want to be. Well, and that's, and that's all well and good because uh, I'm happy for Shira Haas to get back to Stissel so I can maybe once again hear her say, Lipa Weiss, which I think she reads is a line she reads just with such gusto. It's so great. Great in that show, great in this show. Uh, wonderful conversation about Unorthodox. Uh, well, we thank you for joining us on this episode. We hope that you'll join us next time. And in between, we hope that you will rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, smash that subscribe button. Uh, we'd love to learn with you. We'd love to hear from you. So let us know if you're enjoying this and, uh, and, and what you're taking away from it. And we hope uh, this podcast is a little distraction for you from uh, the uncertain and trying times we're facing. Um, we have, some of us have more time on our hands. Some of us actually have less time on our hands. But yep. if, uh, we hope that you find this as an opportunity to disconnect a little bit from the realities of the world we're living. And most importantly, stay safe, everyone. Stay healthy. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Take care.